Church, good morning. If you got a Bible with you, open up to 1 John chapter 2. 1 John chapter 2, we'll look at verses 15 through 17. If you're able to, would you stand out of reverence for God's word? We're going to immediately jump right into this from here. This is what God's word says to us this morning. Do not, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, that's not from the Father, but it's from the world. Verse 17, would you read that aloud with me? And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is God's word to us this morning. You can be seated. Three verses. There's a lot here, isn't there? Main idea, if you're taking notes, is simple. The darkness will never, ever, ever satisfy you. People that have walked in darkness for a prolonged period of time, and then been forgiven by Christ would be able to testify to this in great detail. Even those that have followed Jesus for some time and then started to walk wayward, Christ then calls them back to himself and they repent, they'd be able to tell you likewise. There's, um, there's a pastor that was defrocked in southern, or excuse me, South Florida at the time. His name is Tullian Tavidian. Tullian had a very healthy ministry in the early 2000s and wrote books like Jesus plus nothing equals everything. We would agree with that statement here. That's absolutely true. Um, Tullian was a very gifted preacher. He was a great leader, um, at least in terms of like managing people. He wasn't faithful to his spouse. He wasn't faithful to his spouse. And this is seen over and again, a lot of different times, for a prolonged period of time. And he was eventually defrocked from the Presbyterian Church of America. Since then, by all accounts, um, it seems like he's walked in repentance since. From early 2014 or 15 to now, it seems like he's been open and honest with several people, both laypersons, close friends, other pastors that he knows. Whether or not he should be in ministry again is another conversation. The point remains is that he's been able to walk in integrity and freedom for a significant amount of time. A man that proclaimed the goodness of God can tell you um, just how deep and broken our sin nature really is. And when we're not careful, we can be led astray by any sort of thing. The greatest danger, John would say, I think, isn't just the stuff that's going on out there, but the stuff that's really happening in here. Stuff that wells up for even with inside of us. And he would tell you, Tullian would tell you, that darkness will ever, never ever satisfy you. But what can? I hope to prove that 
the God of the gospel really can. If you're taking notes, you'll fill in the blanks, um, starting with verse 15. Your heart is too small for two loves. Your heart is too small for two loves. John, he's pointed in this section, isn't he? He's dealing with absolutes, isn't he? Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. Period, the end. How many of us love things in the world? I know I do. I've got a cell phone in my pocket right now. I like it. I like its convenience. It's not bad. It gives us a list, though, of everything that's in the world. Just a, just a verse later. But he says, don't love the world. Why on planet Earth would he say, don't love the world? Jesus commands us to love people in the world, a very particular group of people in the world, doesn't he? You, at the very least, are in the world today, like right now. You're on it. Planet Earth, welcome. God loved the world in such a way that he gave his one son so that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish but would have eternal life. God loves the world. Do you feel the tension and the conflict here in this passage? What's he talking about when he says, don't love the world or the things of the world? John's saying two things here. One, the world here is shaded dominated, under control. From the worst governments in the world to the very best, to the very best of them. Economics, entertainment, all of it is under control of one supernatural being. It's known affectionately as the evil one. The serpent, the liar, Satan. It's not just ran by individuals. He is called the prince of the power of the air. He's called the God of this world. But second is a word of love and it has a different name. Instead of selfish love of participation, Christians partake in the holy love of redemption. God seeking to save even the worst of us, even those of us that might be like Tullian. God is single-minded towards his ends from the very beginning of creation. And everyone that has been rescued from their sin is gradually learning to be and do the same. That is to be about his glory. And it's not the system of things that God has come to rescue. He's not interested in that. God is interested in reclaiming every square inch of creation in the cosmos for his glory. The kingdom of darkness has been dethroned by God's power demonstrated through Jesus in the announcement of Christ coming and conquering sin and Satan and flesh. And death itself is what liberates sinners. 
It's what frees them from being enchained, enslaved to being someone that's able to live life fully in the way that God has designed them to be, as newly liberated, forever forgiven, constantly sanctified people. And it's in God's work in saving people that changes even what they love. Even what they gravitate towards in normal, everyday life. And this is so, this is what's so wild about the Christian experience is that God changes the normal, everyday person's heart from being a heart of stone and transforms it into a heart of flesh. It becomes tender towards the things of God, this new, this new heart that we have. It becomes sensitive to the things that God cares about, that he's about. We strive for his glory and not our own. And why wouldn't it in light of what he's done? This gentle heart is gained in place of the one that was once unsensing, stony, and dead. And what you end up discovering as you follow Jesus is that the world offers to satisfy every ache in your very cold heart once was cold, and we find that it's never satisfied. Arthur Bruce Marshall, he said this, I still prefer to believe that sex is a substitute for religion and that a young man who rings the bell at the brothel is unconsciously looking for God. It's not that your heart had room for all of these things that it wants and gropes for and desires and works really hard to get. It's that it's so broken and so stony and so hard that you tried everything and everything to feel something and to be something for something deep inside of you to be satisfied and nothing else works except the gospel of Jesus. But then we get a brand new heart. In this soft, transformed, sanctified heart we find isn't big enough to contain all of the pleasures that this world offers to us. Rather, it's very small. And the simplest thing in the world is what can really give us hope and meaning and life and joy and peace. And it's what Jesus has done for you and me. A heart is too small for too many loves. Do you remember the parable that Jesus gave about money? You can't serve two masters. Either we'll serve God or we'll serve mammon, we'll serve money. He's talking about money, that's true, but it's applicable to anything else in life, isn't it? It's applicable to anything else that the world offers. No one can serve two masters. Why would the love of God not be in us? Because we could say it a different way. This town isn't big enough for the two of us. That's what the Lord would say. 
to us than any other competing desire that we might have. And so your longings are rooted in your lusts. There are things that are in this world. What's he say? For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Traditionally, these have been summed up as sex and money and power. And there are, there are worse ways to like sum this kind of thing up. We might say them in a different way. There are longings that well up from within us. You might hear it as, if it feels good, do it. What does it sound like? It sounds like I want to feel better than what I am. There are longings for things that are outside of us, for things that are here and now. It's, it's excessive want for stuff and wealth. And so what would that sound like? I want to live better than what I really am and what I really have. The last one might be the scariest of all, this pride of life. I want to be better than what I really am. There are longings for things that are above us. The world wants better position, more visibility, more mobility, more recognition. It wants to be understood. It wants to be adored. And John says that these things, they're not from God. Question, what's wrong with sex, though? Any takers? That's right. What's wrong with having stuff? What's wrong with having $1 billion in your bank account? The taxes, maybe. Fair enough. What's wrong with being liked? I'm not a sociopath. I like being liked by people. It's good having friends. What's wrong with a little piece of fruit? The language that John uses here is eerily similar to the problem in the garden. You go back to Genesis 2, starting in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and he brought him into the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of everything in the garden, but the tree of knowledge and good and evil, you shall not eat of that. For in the day that you do, you shall surely die. God gives Adam a very significant warning. The day that you eat of the fruit, what happens? You dead. Actually, factually. The next chapter over, just a few verses later, we see the serpent whispering to Adam's bride. For God knows that when you eat of the tree of knowledge and good and evil, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree, that it was good for food, less of the flesh, I want to feel good. That was a delight to her eyes. 
Lust of the eyes, it's, it's outside of me. I can get satisfaction from somewhere outside of me. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and she ate it and she gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. There's nothing wrong with a piece of fruit or a billion dollars in your bank account or sex or being liked. The danger is in how attractive these things are in making them ultimate and final above and over us. The difference is what God says about them. While God gave Adam and Eve free reign to eat anything and everything that was in the garden, there was one particular one that could make them better than what they really were. They thought they could find wisdom outside of God. They thought that they could be like him. They thought that they can have their tummies filled. They thought that God was holding out on beautiful and wonderful things. And they bought the lie. They craved it. And so John is telling us post-fall, you have a sweet tooth and you and I need to watch out for these cravings that show up. They pop up a lot, don't they? And they scream at us, satisfy me, scratch the itch, find life and stuff around you. And the trouble here is ultimately not just these base nature kinds of things. It's a matter of worship or specifically it's a matter of idolatry. We're being pulled towards the things of the world and the way the world works primarily is through idolatry. Colossians 3, 5, put to death therefore whatever is earthly or fleshly or worldly that's in you. Whether it's sexual morality or impurity, passions, evil desires, covetousness, which is idolatry. For John the longings and cravings and desires that we have come out of a place of love. What is it that you love ultimately and finally? If you're not quite sure, you can find out when you poke and prod on those things that you crave. Can you say with a full heart that you, O oh God, are my satisfaction and delight? being candid and honest, even in a leadership position, even in, goodness, in just being a normal everyday person. We just want to be understood by people sometimes. And with that comes safety. The safety that you and I need ultimately and finally though doesn't come just from relationships that we have. These are important and good, but ultimately I need the safety that comes from being known as God's son. I need his approval. I need what he desires for my life. You need what he desires for your life. What 
What we run to is a matter of love, and what we love is a matter of devotion. That's what ultimately holds sway over us. You need to worship well because you are what you love. And you worship what you love. And you might not love what you think that you do love. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart to be more attentive and intentional about what you love. Look at verse 17. John's tying up loose ends in this, in this section here. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. He gives us two big truths in this passage, in this, in this section, doesn't he? It says first, the individual who unites his will with these desires that, that belong to the world, they will also one day vanish because the world is going to as well. There's an individual that loves the world in such a way that they're intimately tied with it. And so as the world goes, they do too. They evaporate. Destroyed, gone, finito, done. But he gives the opposite. He says that the one who does the will of God lives forever. Consider the first part. Again, the world is passing away or it's running away. It won't be here forever. The world and just like the darkness that's in it is, it's, it, the, the bottom is about to fall out in it. So since the prince of this world is driven out and stands condemned, it follows that the world that he governs stands condemned too. And they just like God's will, they're going to live forever. Those that abide at least. Isn't it weird then for those that have a false teaching about the body? Remember what we said about Gnostics, body bad, spirit good. Anything spiritual is a-okay. Body doesn't matter at all. It's a bunch of rubbish and nonsense. You could throw it in the waste bin. Throw it in the trash. For a false teaching that hates the body, it's attracted to all of the things that the flesh needs in order to be gratified and satisfied. Do you see that? The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. When you go back to the beginning of John's letter, though, That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, and we have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we've seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim, we speak it out to you, the eternal life which was from the Father, which was made manifest to us. There's a way in which we can talk about the body or other people's bodies that can either dominate us 
or it can aid us in worshiping the one true living God. Instead of using our longings to be understood or for someone else's approval, what if instead we pursued the one who approves us greatly because of Christ's death and resurrection? What if instead of letting our eyes gander and glance at someone else's house and wishing that we lived in it? Or someone else's husband or wife and wishing that they were ours? What if instead we were like the psalmist? Or we did what the psalmist said. Psalm 66, 5, come and see what God has done. How he's rescued you and me, what he's done at great cost for you and me and giving us his son. What if instead of using our bodies or someone else's body to get something we think we want, what if instead we offered our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, friends? John warns that the darkness will never ever satisfy us and it can't because it will not be here forever. But don't you want something that satisfies and lasts until the very end and even beyond? John calls us to trust in God's son, Jesus, and to follow him on the slip path. Put to death, therefore, whatever is earthly in you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today and we thank you for the word and we're grateful, um, again, for John's pointed words towards us. When we live according to the flesh, can quote Romans, we will die. What a challenging word it is for us. The good news is that those that abide will live forever. Father, will you help us abide today? Will you help us trust today? Will you help us be satisfied in you today? Father, would you train our hearts to lose its taste for the things of this world? Instead, grow a palate and an appetite for things of the next. Father, you love us, and we love you because you love us, and we give you this day. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.